Please be seated. Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11. Our text this morning, I'm going to read the entire passage, the entire chapter. I'm going to focus in particular on the latter portion, verses 25 through 30, with special attention to verses 28 through 30. Again, Matthew chapter 11. Hear now the inspired, infallible word of God. And it came to pass, when Jesus had made an end of commanding his twelve disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples, and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he is that he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. But whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like unto children sitting in the markets and calling unto their, fellow, unto their fellows, and saying, We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and ye have not lamented. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he hath a devil. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a, a man gluttonous, and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. Wisdom is justified of her children. Then he began to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which, thou art, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, 
Neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's bow before the Lord before we continue. Sovereign Lord, we are thankful that you have kept these words pure, that you have preserved them for our good. Thank you for condescending to us to speak to us in a manner that we could understand. Thank you for the Son who does the work of redemption for us. And thank you for the Spirit that causes us to understand that these are your words. They are not mere mortals' words. Thank you for every work that you've done for us and for our salvation. And now... Clear the distractions, open our minds, and cause us to hear what you would have us hear, that we might glorify you and enjoy you forever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the latter portion, as I said, is where we're going to spend most of our time. And the last three verses of this chapter are probably some of the most well-known in Scripture. And so many of us have, have studied them over the years read commentaries, listened to sermons. And yet, the Bible is consistently one book, one story, the story of God's people, the story of how Christ redeems them. And so hearing the same things over and over shouldn't be new to us. In fact, if there's anything that a minister brings to the pulpit that someone else hasn't said, you ought to look askance at that. Because if we come up with things in the pulpit that the whole of church history hasn't recognized, then that's problematic, to say the least. So we're going to go back to first principles, which I think is always the best place to start. The idea of, of how man can be made right with, with his God, of course, presumes that man recognizes that there is a God who made us. <clears throat> but I look particularly at Matthew's Gospel, and especially the last three verses, but even going back to verse 25, which we will momentarily, I, as I'm interacting with the outside world, and I'm sure as is often the case, as all Christians interact with the world around them, we see the same struggles replicated in the lives of different people. Now, maybe they look different. Maybe there's some different context. But ultimately, that struggle is how can I do enough to have a good life? The problem there, for many of us who've, who've studied the matter, many of us who have been changed by the gospel, is we recognize that left on our own, our standard of goodness is flawed. And it's, and it's that problem. We don't know what good is left in our own, on our own. The natural man, if you will. You'll hear me use that language because scripture uses, uses that language. The natural man versus the spiritual man how the natural man doesn't understand spiritual things because they, he, he can't. And so recognizing uh, how we are made right, how we understand good, and what we're to do in light of that is going to be some, our topic today. Now, if we look in particular, God, Jesus is answering or is uh, talking to his father. And he says, He's hid these things, these things of salvation, these things of repentance, these things being how man can be 
right with his God. Hid them from the wise and the prudent and revealed them unto babes. Now, why is that a big deal? Well, as we've seen consistently through Jesus' ministry, he's had some of the harshest words with the, those who are wise in their own, own eyes and clever in how they discuss their own plans and purposes. And we see elsewhere in the gospel, the, the Pharisee and the publican, that parable that lets us know that it's not the one that has it all together, that has all the I's dotted and the T's crossed, that is proclaimed righteous in that parable. It is, to use the world's language, the hot mess, the one that's in the back, the one that doesn't dare look up to the direction of heaven because he recognizes his lack of worth. It's that one that's relying on someone else's righteousness, someone else's mercy, that Jesus would say was declared righteous. And so for us to see in verse 25, Jesus thanking God that he hid these things from those people that thought they had it all together and revealed it to babes, uh, babes not having all of the I's dotted and T's crossed because they barely know what an I and a T might be, figuratively speaking. Now let's go to verse 27 and pay some attention to that. Because Jesus says something that then doesn't make, on the surface, might not make verses 28 through 30 make sense. He says, All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither, neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Well, okay, if the Father reveals the Son, and I have no hope of understanding who the Son is unless the Father reveals him, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to be saved? How am I supposed to be right with the God who is only going to save me if he decides to reveal? I don't have any hope. And left on our own, we don't have any hope. But that's not how we're left. Let's take a look at verse 28. First word, first three words, but the first word in particular. Come unto me. And specifically that word come. If we were left on our own, trying to figure out how to be made right in the sight of God, only to find out later that it's the Father that reveals the Son to us, and other than that we would have no hope, God would be wicked. He would be asking something of us that we couldn't be doing. But God is not wicked. Verse 28 Verse 29 and verse 30 tell us three things. Tells us what Christ says concerning sinners. Verse 29 tells us what Christ says concerning himself. And verse 30 tells us what Christ says concerning service to him. So we have what Christ says concerning sinners in verse 28. Verse 29 is what Christ says concerning himself. And verse 30 is what Christ says concerning service to him. So let's look at verse 28. We are not left without hope. If we can't come to the Father unless the Father and the Son reveal themselves, well, okay, we're not equipped to be that. But then we see verse 28. <clears throat> come unto me, that gospel call, that invitation, that command to come, 
We're left on our own, and we're ill-equipped to save ourselves. God is reaching out to us and offering us the gospel freely. Anyone who would hear to come, we think of Isaiah 55. We'll go there momentarily. But the gospel call is cast out to everyone. The command to come to Jesus is issued to all sinners. It has to be offered legitimately. But it's not just to come. To come where? To come to Christ without any pre-formed works, without any plans or purposes. Because remember, going back to the earlier verse, the gospel wasn't given, the teachings for salvation weren't given to the ones who had all the works done and had all their pension plans, as good as pension plans can be. They aren't relying on all the works of the world in order to be made right with God. Jesus said it was good that the way of salvation was lived to, were given to babes, the ones who couldn't affect anything towards their own salvation, towards their own righteousness. But all too frequently, we get grown and we start thinking, well, I've done all these things and I've obeyed and I've done these other things over here, so I've got all the I's dotted and T's crossed. God will now bless me. That's a backwards way of looking at those things. God has blessed you with all those other things. He's blessed you, and then you've done. You don't do and then get the blessing. And all too frequently, that's how the world thinks. Because what happens when somebody makes a mistake in the non-Christian world? Where do they go? They go away. They're shunned. Until they get their minds right or they get their actions right. You'll hear celebrities when they make some goofy comment in the world that offends people. They've got to go away for a while to work on themselves. Because by the world's thinking, you get yourself right and then you show up and then we'll tell you whether or not you've done enough. But that's not how the gospel is presented to us. The gospel is presented to us as you can't do anything right. Everything you've done has just made the situation worse. But Christ says, I've done all of the work for you. God the Father is calling his people to himself, saying, no, you can't do anything. But accept the work that I've done for you. Trust that that is sufficient to save your soul because it comes from me, he says. So the gospel call is to approach the Lord without any works, without any ability to affect your own salvation, recognizing that you bring nothing to the table. Historically speaking, we've understood this as the difference between monergism and synergism, this idea of Augustine's teaching versus Pelagius' teaching, the idea that we're not Pelagius, the Pelagian captivity of the church has been discussed. The idea that the fall didn't doom all of mankind, that we are merely sick and we can cooperate with God's grace. That God reaches down a, a bit and we meet him in the middle and then everything works together. But what does that imply? It implies that we've done some things along the way in order to reach up to grasp the brass ring of salvation. But that is not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches... Saint, plainly, basically what Augustine teaches. Augustine is just parroting what Scripture teaches. 
because no matter what theologian we go back to, this is the standard. It's not Augustine. It's not Calvin. It's not Luther. It's not our favorite minister. Certainly not me. It's Scripture. And so if I'm saying something that's true, it's because Scripture has said it, and I'm just pointing to you for you to see it. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. Dead men don't get up and meet the coroner halfway. Dead men are dead. And that's how we are in our trespasses. So for the gospel call to be issued implies that God will do something to make those dead people able to come, to approach Christ. And is that what he's done? Well, the prophet Ezekiel says yes. He's going to remove the heart of stone that doesn't beat, that can't provide any life. That's our heart in our natural state. We are dead. Our hearts, sure, physically pump blood through us. But spiritually, they are dead. And if you've had a conversation with a non-Christian at any point in the recent past, or if you can remember one from way back, you'll know just how dead that heart is by some of the things that you've heard. But the prophet, prophet Ezekiel says he's gonna, that God is going to remove that heart, that stony heart, and put in a heart of flesh that beats, that pumps life through its owner. So God is going to do something to cause the dead men to approach him. So again, if we're only saved by faith in Christ, but we don't have the ability to have that faith in Christ, God has to do something. He has to give us the ability. He has to equip us to come. Because again, like I've said, dead men don't do anything. They just lay there. So that's why we can say definitively from Jonah 2.9 that salvation is of the Lord. While at the same time recognizing you know, we're commanded to come. He's equipped us to walk, to approach, to have the life in us to approach and to accept Christ. So who, to whom is this call issued? The next verse, the next chunk. All ye that, are labor, that labor and are heavy laden. Now who might that be? every single person walking this earth. Because all of us in our natural state, like Jacob Marley in Dickens' Christmas Carol, fashion the chains that we carry through this life and the afterlife. Left on our own, we're trying our best, but our best isn't good enough because it's tainted by sin, Adam's and our own, as well as all the other sins that are inflicted on us. We're doing nothing but piling up filthy rags before the foot of the cross and saying, this is the best I have to offer, Lord. Is it good enough? No, it's not good enough. All of us labor and are heavy laden. All of us wrestle with and struggle, especially in our natural condition. Sometimes in our spiritual condition, that old self and new self slam into each other like a clash of civilizations, like Samuel Huntington said. We are all laboring and are heavy laden. The sinner's struggling to get by. And look around you at your non-Christian friends and colleagues, classmates and co-workers. They're struggling to get by. Because in their mind, all that there is is all that there is. Now, maybe they've got a different philosophy and principles, and there's some different flavors of that. But it's all naturalism to one degree or another. 
problem is that doesn't have all the answers. It is insufficient to worship general revelation as though it was special revelation. And there is obvious struggle and hurt and pain because it's not supposed to be sufficient for salvation. It cannot do the things that God does through the person and work of Christ. And so when those things start breaking down, well, there's panic and there's chaos because they've placed all their eggs in the basket of self. So what happens when there's a hole in that basket? Or what happens when there's not? And the good works just keep piling up. Materialism, naturalism, whatever, anything that's not biblical Christianity laid out in the Bible fails to save. And it leads to one of two places. Pride or despair. Pride and look at all the good things I did. We see this personified in the Pharisees. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like all these other other people. I tithe of this and that and the other. Jesus says, listen to the Pharisees when they teach things, but don't do the things that they do. They want to be seen, you know, they want to have a place at the table. They want to be in a position of prominence. They want to get the praises of men, and they'll have their reward. And so pride flows out of materialism, non-biblical theology, if you will. See how great I am, not realizing they're heavy laden because of their labor, because they think their labor will save. Or despair, hopelessness. And many of us have seen more this than pride. Some of us have seen more pride than despair. But the despair flows from, look, I'm laboring, I'm laboring, I'm laboring, and I just feel like I'm drowning. All of my work is just crushing me. And it's not enough. I can't get traction. I can't do the things I need to do. The gospel comes along. The free gift of salvation. All Christ is saying is come to me. I know you're laboring. I know you're struggling. I know you're heavy laden. You're trying to do too much. You have human solutions to a spiritual problem it's a divine problem and I've come to relieve you of that burden and that's where the end of verse 28 takes us I will give you rest the problem with laboring and being heavy laden by working towards your own salvation is that it is exhausting whether it whether you succeed in an earthly way or you're struggling in an earthly way either way it is exhausting because you are trying to apply a human solution to a divine problem. How was man made right with his maker? And so we enter the God-man, fully God, to satisfy divine justice, fully man, because man was the one that offended the divine being. He has to be both. But Christ is telling sinners, you are doing too much, and it is crushing you. Come to me, and I will keep you from being crushed. And for many people, that's all they've ever really wanted. I just don't want to be crushed. I don't want it to be so hard. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't challenges in the Christian life. That's, not, that's outside of the scope of what we're discussing right now. 
Christ elsewhere talked about the fact that his people would always have struggles, that there would always be the poor, that people would kill them and think that they were doing God's service. So we recognize that it's not all rainbows and puppy dogs to be a Christian. And that's a flaw that I think American evangelism has propagated, maybe without realizing, maybe it's an unintended consequence, but it's no less a consequence. When we've talked about coming to Christ and all of our problems going away, if we've meant that at some point we will be have, have glorified bodies, we will have eternal life in Christ, and all of our tears will be wiped away, and sin and death will be no more, if that's what we've meant, then that's a biblical way of expressing that. But if we've meant come to Jesus and all your earthly problems will go away, then we have missed the mark entirely. We have not been honest and open. Because for many of us that have come to Christ, especially a little bit later in life, that's when the problem started. Because we recognized just how sinful we are, just how much in need of a Savior we were from a long time ago, and just how close to God's judgment we were when we were committing those wicked deeds and wicked thoughts and wicked speech. And so for us, we recognize we desperately need rest from the idea that we can affect anything close to our salvation. Note elsewhere in the scriptures, this doesn't mean we don't do anything. It doesn't mean we don't labor. It doesn't mean we don't work. Because whatever we're supposed to do, whether we eat or drink, all of our labors are, be do- are to be done to the glory of God. Our shorter catechism, first question. That's our chief end. So I can't say that just come to Christ and stop doing anything. Paul had words in elsewhere in the New Testament for that, that if somebody didn't work, they didn't eat. So they're tied to labor, but that's not the labor that Christ is discussing right now. He's saying stop trying to think that you can do the things to be made righteous. He says, come to me and I'll make you righteous. This rest that Christ offers is the rest from trying to think that we have to have it all together. So many of us have struggled and many are struggling now. It's the common condition of man of just trying to have accumulate things and be defined by our works be defined by the degrees we have after our name, to be defined by the car in our driveway, the size of our driveway, the size of our garage and house and property, that that is going to make us righteous and right. Sadly, all too frequently, God's people have made that the standard. Oh, this person's successful in business. We'll make him an elder. Well, this person's got a nice house and a, a nice family. Never mind that there's just rottenness when the doors are closed. They're no different than the Pharisees that are whitewashed tombs. Jesus said, you look great on the outside. You're full of rotten dead men's bones on the inside. So we can't let that worldly standard be the standard by which we judge how we're made righteous in the sight of God. We follow Christ, and Christ says, come to me. He says, all of us need that. He says, all ye who are weary, he says, all y'all who are weary and who labor and are heavy laden, you're burdened with this. I will take that burden off of you. And that's what he says in verse 29. He says, take my yoke upon you, that yoke where we're guided, where the oxen are guided. Some of those yokes you know, are massive, 
You see an old yoke, some of them are stone, some of them are wood, irrespective of that, weigh a lot. Christ says, take my yoke on you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. So he's transitioning in verse 28. He says, I'm going to give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Walk with me. Engage with me. Listen to what I've said. Follow and do the things that I've said. But notice the order. Trust in the one that's saying to come. Trust in the provision of rest. And then after that trust and provision, then it's the learning, then it's the active process. But even then, it's not, come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest so that you can do all these good works and stay in my good graces. That's not what's being said at all. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And God is the one who keeps us saved. We in our faithfulness, in our good works, do not earn faithfulness. We don't stay saved that way. Justification is an act of God's free grace. Adoption is an act of God's free grace. Sanctification is a work of God's free grace. It is something ongoing, but it's God that does all of the equipping. We submit to his will. That's what we're doing when we're taking the yoke of Christ. We're submitting like children submit to their parents we are submitting to the one, to our parent the one who made us and he tells us to learn of him to walk with him to have a relationship with him to study his word to study the story of him that starts in Genesis 1 and ends at Revelation to walk with him in holiness trusting in the provision of rest that he offers in verse 28. Many people have run afoul of Christianity, not because there's an inherent flaw in Christianity, but because they didn't understand the nature of what their good works actually were. If we go back to Exodus chapter 20, we see in the preface of the Ten Commandments and then the rest of the chapter, what flows out of that. I'll go back to that and read that to you. Just the, just the preface. I've banged the drum of the preface of the Ten Commandments for years now. Listen to what Moses wrote. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Two verses, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. And then he proceeds to say the Decalogue, the ten words. <clears throat> I did the redemption. Here's how I would have you live. Abide in my word. Study. Do the things I asked you to do because of what I've already done for you. The saints of the Old Testament were saved by faith. They were saved by grace through faith. Trusting in the provision that was given them and walking faithfully along the way. The blood of bulls and goats doesn't save. It doesn't act in and of itself. It's not sufficient to redeem anyone. It was the faith of the one who submitted to the plans that the Lord gave in the Old Testament system. That faith was effectual. It wasn't the not wearing of mixed fabrics. 
wasn't following after all of those laws was trust in the one who said, this is what I've done for you. Here's how I would have you live. And it was trusting in the same way that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. We are saved by that same faith. Faith in the one that says, come to me. I'll give you rest. I know what you need. And then he says, I'm not burdensome. The world has its burdens and it demands labor. It's taking from you all that you have and all that you are. Christ is saying, come to me and I'll give you everything that I have and everything that I am. It's the best that we could possibly hope for. It's far more than we deserve. And I'm not talking just about us in this room right now. I'm talking about the human race. Because as I read the scriptures, I see stiff-necked, I see rebellious, I see feckless people. But I also see a God who pursues and preserves and protects. And it is that God at the end of Matthew chapter 11 saying, I will give you all of these things. Walk with me. Come under under submission to me and my will for your life. That yoke that I have for you. I'm not a burdensome taskmaster like the world. The yoke that I have for you, you can handle that yoke because of who I am, Christ says. We think of yokes, we think of being under submission, being controlled by someone else. When we're under the the yoke of the world and its standards, and its arbitrary standards at that. Because some people can get away with some things, and others can't, and some it's okay to do certain things, and other people can't, and the standard for one isn't the standard for all. It's throwing a dart at a moving dartboard. But then even if you do the right things, if you do it for the wrong reason, for the wrong circumstances, it's madness. The yoke of the world is a crushing, insane yoke to bear. And that's what Christ is trying to alleviate at the end of Matthew chapter 11. He's saying, my yoke is none of those things. He's juxtaposing, he's comparing the the process of following false religion and the ways of the world, the process of following, following the true religion, the way of Christ. And he's saying, this yoke that I offer you because of who I am and what I expect from you, this is a yoke you can bear. Not because you are super strong and you can handle all the things, Because anyone that's come to Christ, one of the things that they've had to recognize is they can't handle all of the things. For a lot of us, we can't handle any of the things. But we're trusting in the one who says, I can handle them all, and I've handled them all for you. Christ says he's meek and lowly in heart. He's not prideful. He's not tyrannical. He's not arrogantly demanding us to submit the way the world arrogantly demands that we submit, that it would, it would seek to crush our wills. Christ is redeeming our wills, conforming us to his will, transforming us by the renewing of our mind, changing our identity, making us new creations, implying, of course, that there was something inherently flawed with the old. And of course, we know that. As blood-bought lambs of the Lord Jesus, we recognize the scriptures teach us that we are all of us equal in the sight of God, equally sinful, 
equally deserving his wrath and curse. And in our natural state, that's what he, he's, we're under. And Christ is saying, this yoke that I'm, that I'm commanding you to come and receive is not a humiliating yoke. It's a liberating yoke because of who I am and who I can be to you. If you'll just come, set aside those things. Come as you are, broken and weary and tired, tired of trying to have it all together. It's exhausting to try to have all the answers. It's exhausting to try to even know all the questions. It's exhausting to try to be perfect all the time. And that's the standard that we have laid out for us in Scripture, to be made right in the sight of God, 100% perfection, 100% of the time, a standard that would crush us, and Christ knew it, and he knows it, and he's telling us to come to him so he'll take that desire that we have to be him away. He says, come to me, and I'll give you everything that you need, and what I'll give you it won't be crushing. It'll be a liberating yoke. Not only will it liberate you, it'll fit you to do what you're supposed to have already been doing. We're saved unto good works. We're saved by grace through faith. It's the gift of God. Not of man, lest any man should boast. But we're saved to something. We're saved into the family of God but we're saved to do good works. We're saved to glorify God who liberated us, who brought us out of the land of slavery. And we're called to enjoy him forever as we submit our wills to his, as we are conformed to the image and likeness of Christ, more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. We are glorifying him and enjoying him forever. This is just practice and training for glory, for eternity, stripping away the, the dross. How does Christ end the chapter? Well, he talks more about the yoke, but he's talking about how we're to live in him, how we're to serve Christ. He says, this yoke that I mentioned just a moment ago, that, that my yoke that you can handle, because of who I am, it's easy. The burden's light. Why is the yoke easy and why is the burden light? Because we don't have to do any of the work to be under the yoke. Christ has done all the work. The work of having it all together. To be tempted like all of us but without sin. To have lived the life that we should have lived. To die the death that we deserved. That's why... His yoke is easy. That's why the burden is light, because he's done all the work for it. It might look like a heavy yoke to an outsider. And that's precisely what non-Christians see the Bible as, and I can tell you that because that's how I perceived the Bible as a non-Christian. I looked at it <clears throat> as an albatross hanging around the neck of humanity, a list of rules that shackled them to keep them from enjoying life and having a good time or living however they wanted to live, however you want to say it. It was only as the gospel was laid out clearly that this sinner and every other sinner 
recognizes that the Bible is actually not the list of rules where we're supposed to live a particular way, and if we don't, we'll get punished. Because Jesus himself said in John's gospel, we're condemned already. We're condemned already. All of us are in desperate need of the yoke that Christ provides. This latter yoke, not the yoke of the world. Because in our natural state, we do exactly as we prayed earlier. Call evil good and good evil. We don't know what the good life is because we don't have a clue what that is. And if we think we do, the way we would describe the good life is precisely how God would describe the evil life. Unless we've come to Christ. Unless we've dropped the yoke of the world and picked up the yoke of Christ. And the only way we do that is remember what verse 27 says. God the Father and God the Son have opened our eyes to see. Salvation is of the Lord. We can't even say that our profession of faith is our own. It is our own, but it's our own because God has equipped us to make it our own. When we drop the yoke of the world and we take on this light yoke that Christ offers us freely, We are recognizing that we lack the ability to carry the yoke of Christ. But we will trust when he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm not asking you to do good works. I'm not asking you to just have it all together. It's not like Christ looks, uh, God has looked at people or Christ has looked at people in the New Testament and said, you know what, those folks have it all together. I'm going to go ahead and give them my yoke. That's not what he says at all. God has done all of the work for our salvation. All of it. And so that's why it's light for us. Because all we're doing is acknowledging that we can't carry this yoke. The idea of the one who seeks to gain his life will lose it, and the one who seeks to lose it will find it. It's antithetical to the world because the world says you can create your own heaven. You can create your own utopia. If, you're, if you do enough and if you are enough, then you'll bring heaven to earth. What hubris. What pride. But that's the natural man. The gospel call is to come to Christ and die. Now, perhaps that's actually a literal statement for some, certainly in some parts of the world. In many parts of the world, in some portions of history, that was actually the case. If you come to Christ, you will die. But it's dying to self. Dying to the idea that you can carry the burden that Christ carried. And Christ is saying, no, you can't. But I can. And because I can, the yoke that I give you will be easier than this yoke that you think you can carry for yourself. It really is a complete transformation. And it's not one that we can affect for ourselves because as as we mentioned earlier, we're dead in our sins and trespasses. We can't can't drop a yoke because it's already crushed us. We can't pick up the yoke of Christ on our own unless he reveals that his yoke is better than the one we have on our own shoulders. So the larger issue is, 
Whose yoke are you carrying? Under what burden are you now, and under what burden would you rather be? Would you rather be under the burden that says, you have to do it my way, and whoever says my changes from time to time, so you never can tell if you've done enough? I mean, that was Luther's problem. As he came to the crisis of faith, as he's struggling with the Augustinian monkhood, he doesn't know if he's done enough good. He doesn't know if the good that he's done has been for the right reasons. And what was it doing? It was driving him nuts. Is that the yoke under which you would like to be for all eternity? Would you rather be under Christ's yoke? The yoke given to you by someone who revealed the fact that he's fully God, that he's fully man, that he's completely and utterly capable of providing every single thing that you've been struggling to provide for yourself. Christ yoke that we need so when Christ says come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest it's rest for our souls it might be rest for our lives our physical life at some point but ultimately the rest that we need is rest for our souls and it is only through God the Father and God the Son opening the eyes of our minds and the Holy Spirit coming in and convicting us of sin converting us that causes us to throw the shackles of the world's yoke off and pick up the light burden of Christ's yoke. It's the yoke that we have to carry and we're equipped to carry. And it's the yoke that we urge all of our non-believing friends to pick up and carry. But they're not going to do it unless God reveals. And so we need to pray. Because no slick gospel presentation is going to do it. No fancy words. No logical connections. Because remember, salvation is of the Lord. And it is a gift of God. But we who have already been transformed have the sweet privilege of praying that others would have the blessing of knowing that their sins are forgiven and their, their, uh, that their iniquities are covered as well. The yoke of Christ leads to true freedom. We need to remember that when we're tempted by the yoke of the world. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you've seen fit according to your mercy and for your will and your plan alone to transform us from rebels to redeemed. We pray for our non-Christian friends and family that we, if it's your will, would have the opportunity to point these verses out to them that they might by your leading slough off and shrug off the yoke of the world and take up the light yoke of Christ and that, so that they would have rest for their souls as well remind us that everything that, that we have with regards to our salvation comes from you so that we might point past ourselves and point to you as the author and finisher of our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.